We're continuing in our Dig Deep series. The idea is, is that God is calling all of us into a deeper and more transformed life as we're transforming things around here with our buildings. We know the Lord wants us to be new and transform people. And so in the Dig Deep thing, we're looking at different aspects of what the Lord is like, different aspects of his personality, of his character, with the idea that if we have a better sense of what God is like, that that's going to help us understand better the life that God wants us to lead. So that just like anybody else, if you know them better, you're going to live with them better. And so each... Uh-oh. Excuse me. This thing went to sleep, sorry. (laughs) So today, what we're going to focus on is this characteristic. We've been singing about it for a while, but we're going to focus on God's holiness. Now, this is something that the Lord himself has said is essentially who he is. He says, look, we're supposed to be holy because he is holy. It's, it's a fundamental part of who he is. And it's not limited to just a few elites. In the passage where this comes from in Leviticus 19, where it said most clearly, you know, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the fact that it's for the whole assembly means that it's something that's for all of us. It's not something that's just for certain elites, people who have certain holy abilities or anything like that. It's, it's something for all of us. But here's the interesting thing. You would think that since the Lord says something like this, that God's holiness would make him more accessible. Since it's something we're supposed to do, we would think that it would be tied to God's accessibility. Yet, if you've talked about God's holiness much, that's not what it's about, at least in the way that we normally talk about it. We say that because God is holy, it somehow makes him less accessible. You know, not that God is holy and come to him, it's God, because God is holy, you better watch out. Because God is holy, you better be careful. And, and there's a certain amount of truth to that. God's God and we're not, and it's kind of helpful to have that squared away. But nevertheless, almost any time people talk about God's holiness, it's about inaccessibility and about how we're just not ready. So if there's a, if there's a sense of, of what holiness is like, it means it's what you can't taste. It's what you can't look at. It's what you can't touch. You know, and so... That's pretty good, eh? I'm kind of proud of that, so I'm just going to pause here for a minute. But when we talk about how God is holy, it backfires, I think, from how God really wants to be understood and how he really wants this to be one of the points, foundation points of our relationship with him. Because what happens instead is we say that God is holy and we need to be super careful when we're around him, that we hear holiness and what we hear is it's like... The water's really deep here. The electricity is really sharp. Stuff is really scary. So really, really, just tiptoe. If you're going to go in there at all, tiptoe. Here's some examples of this. I, I, 
because part of this, you know, I'm somebody that's read a lot of this stuff, thought about this stuff for a while, and I have noticed this, that usually when people talk about God's holiness, they start talking about God's inaccessibility, and they sound kind of mad when they talk about it, too. You know, generally, we ought to be happy when we're talking about what God is like. But people, let me just read you a couple of examples of people talking about holiness. And again, this is just to give you an idea of this. This is from a writer named A.W. Tozer, who otherwise is, is pretty good, but he gets on the subject of God's holiness, and look at what he says here. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible and unattainable. It's a lot of uns in a row. And I think Tozier is actually on to something else here, but here's the thing. I think most of us hear him talking like that, and what we get out of that is that God is unapproachable, that because God is holy and all of those other uns, God's here and we're here, and we need to be really careful to keep it that way, because God is holy. The other aspect of it is because God is holy and sinless, our own sense of being people who have sinned and have been sinned against and are probably going to sin again, maybe this week, maybe today, maybe in the next 20 minutes, that that puts some distance between us and God too and makes us almost unable to be in his presence. Here's another example of somebody talking about God's holiness and our sin. It says, God hates sin because he is holy. Holiness is the most exalted of all his attributes. I don't even know what that means, but people say that a lot. His holiness totally saturates his being. His holiness epitomizes his moral perfection and his absolute freedom from blemish of any kind. I'm not sure who that was that said that. Like I said, it was just some guy on the internet that I ran across. But he doesn't sound very happy does he, in that, in that sentence? He's trying to tell us something really important about God, and yet the way he's gotten a hold of holiness is God's over here and we're over here. God's good and we're not. God's appro- we, we'd like to approach God, but because God's holy, I don't know. We hear stuff like this, and we don't hear about how good God is. What we hear... Whoops. Uh Uh-oh. How do I go backwards? Okay, there it is. Technology is awesome when you do it right. (laughs) You know, what we hear is I'm blemished and I'm imperfect. And God's there and I'm not. But here's the good news. That's not how it's supposed to be. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at several stories that happen in the Bible where people encounter God in his holiness, in his full power, in, his full, in Jesus, in his full sinless perfection. If, if holiness is his highest attributes, then these are people encountering God as high as he can possibly be encountered. But instead of being freaked out, instead of creating space, what we see is that in every one of these instances, God creates space and allows people to come to him. That when God is fully revealed as holy, instead of pushing people away, God finds a way to bring us to himself. 
And that's what we're going to see repeatedly. The reason for this is that, for me, I come to this verse a lot. This is, this is probably, if, if I have a, a single verse in how I've better understood God over the last 10 or 15 years, it's this verse from Isaiah. I remember reading this for the first time, and it was just like, oh my gosh. This, this is exactly right. It says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. You know, we all know that God is good, and God is just, and God is holy, and we tend to think that because of that, he's forced to be gracious and merciful because he's good and we're not. God has to be merciful and gracious to us, sort of like, and to hear people talk about it, it's almost as if God has hay fever and we're pollen. And his grace and his mercy are the the anti, what, what do you call those things? antihistamines that you have to take in order to be around pollen. They're not medicine. They're not something that God has. They're not a drug that God has to take in order to stand being with us. It's fundamental to who God is. You notice those verbs there? God longs to be great. His grace is not a reaction to us. It's something that comes from God's deepest desire to be gracious to us. And when he gets up in the morning being just and holy, to hear some people talk, it's like, yeah, I'm going to find out what's wrong with those guys today. No, God gets out of bed. Presuming he, I'm assuming that's what it means when he gets up in the morning. Um, he rises up to show us compassion. That that's what, since I'm already down this road, what gets God out of bed every day is the opportunity to show compassion to his people, to us, to you, to me. And so just to kind of sum it up today, what we're going to hear from me, if you get a hold of this today, it's that this is because God is holy, God makes ready and God makes room. He makes us ready and he makes room for us to be in his presence. Because God is holy, God makes ready and God makes room. Well, I told you I'd tell you some stories from examples of this. Here's one of them, and this is a passage from Isaiah 6. That's the source of one of the songs we were just singing, that holy, holy, holy song. That that term comes from Isaiah 6. What this is is the story of how Isaiah, who's connected to the temple, has this vision of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And God uses this to call him to be a prophet. But as you'll see in a minute, When Isaiah first sees God in his complete holiness, he is completely freaked out. He completely thinks, I'm done for. And yet, God makes him ready, and he makes room. So, this is how it begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, and this is like a big crisis in Israel. We're talking about the mid-8th century BCE. I saw the Lord. Exalted, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the thing we need to get a hold of here is this is not everyday stuff. You know, you read the Bible and you think, oh, these are Bible people. They see this stuff all the time. This has only happened a couple times in history, and it's the only time it had happened to Isaiah. And it hadn't happened to anybody for hundreds of years at the point that this happens to Isaiah. This is a big deal. He is completely out beyond where he can touch the bottom when this happens. 
And not only does he see the Lord, which is, you know, tends to freak people out, you'll notice when it happens to them in the Bible. Not only does he see the Lord, but he sees these weird flying creatures. He says there were seraphim, seraphim being the plural of a seraph, which is a kind of angel, angelic creature, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And this is in a space that's a little bit smaller than this room. The holy place of the temple was a little bit smaller than this room. So God is filling it up, and in the space that God's not filling, you have these strange angelic beings flying around. Again, not something when Isaiah got out of bed that day he thought he was going to see. And these angelic beings are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And it's just thundering at this point. This is the basis of the song we just sang. So Isaiah is about to lose it at this point because you just see this over and over again, that when people are in God's presence, they're like, I'm a dead man. I am am in big trouble. God's God, I'm not. What am I going to do about this? And so Isaiah says exactly that. He says, woe to me. I am ruined. And then he uses a really interesting phrase here. He says, I am a man of unclean lips because I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Two two key things. He's talking about lips here because this is a bit of foreshadowing of what's going to go on later in the story. Isaiah is going to be called to be a prophet where his job is going to be speaking on God's behalf. And he's saying, these good words can't come through these bad lips is where he's going. But this is also kind of a stands in for his general sense of who he is. And, And notice the word that he uses here, because I, I think this really gets at our feelings. He doesn't say sinful lips. He uses the word unclean. Now, that, that had a very specific meaning in Israel's religion, but I think he's using it here more for its emotional value, because isn't that what it feels like when you've sinned? That you feel dirty, that you feel unclean. When you know you knew the right thing and you didn't do it, or you did the wrong thing anyway, you feel like that that's what sin often feels like. It feels unclean. And a lot of us have dealt with the implications of that and dealt with the implications of that building up. And so here is Isaiah in the presence of a holy God, and there's no doubt that he's in God's presence, and his only response is to say, essentially, I'm a dead man because I'm a sinner because I'm unclean, and I live among sinful, unclean people. Just as he's done saying this, one of the flying cherub guys goes over to the, to the burning altar that's there in the temple, and he grabs one of the embers, and he takes it, and you can just see Isaiah, and he flies towards Isaiah, and you can just see, think Isaiah's going to, this is it, I'm done for. He's going to, like, light me on fire, and I'm going to burn up in God's presence. But instead, Isaiah tells us that the cherub took that ember and he says, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this is a classic situation. If God in his full holiness absolutely can't stand sin, if God is holy and it means he's apart from us, 
Here Isaiah is in God's presence, and he's in God's presence as a sinful man. He ought to be done for. But instead, what does the Lord do via the help of his trusty cherub sidekick? He makes him clean. He takes away his sin. That space and says, it's okay for you, Isaiah, to be here in my presence. He makes him clean. He takes away his sin. Again, that phrase, your guilt is taken away. See, that's the thing. We think that because God is holy, when we come into contact with a holy God, it's going to lead us to be over here and God over here. But instead, as you see in this story, when people come, sinful people, broken people, dirty, unclean people, come into God's presence, what does God do? He makes them ready to be in his presence, and he makes room for them in his presence. God fixed what was wrong with Isaiah that made it difficult for him to be in his presence. Because God was holy, God did this. That because God is holy, and when we encounter him as sinful, broken people, God will make us ready to be in his presence, and God will make room for us in his presence. Here's another example of this. This didn't stop with just Isaiah. Later on, it goes on to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, when this passage picks up, Jesus has just established himself. Um, This is the thing John and I went over um, last year, last summer. Jesus has just established himself as God's representative. He's done amazing things through the scriptures. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. And in chapter 5, he's going through the process of calling disciples. And he has just called the first of his disciples to come and follow him. The very next event that happens is while Jesus is in one of the towns of Galilee, the text says that a man came along who was covered with leprosy. You know, leprosy is like a disfiguring skin disease where your skin is is kind of literally rotting away. And in Israel's time and culture, it was like the worst thing that could happen to you because um, it was, leprosy was sort of a metaphor or metonym or synecdoche. I, I can never keep those straight. I used to know this stuff. I don't know this anymore. If any of you paid attention in college, talk to me afterwards and clue me on this, okay? But the idea, the idea is that leprosy kind of stands in for the way that sin affects us, that it makes us, messes with us, tears us up, makes us unclean. In fact, if, if you know some of the rules that they had to live with, because leprosy was an infectious disease, this man, from the time that he was infected, had had to walk on the very edges of town and shout, unclean, unclean any time he had come near anybody else and had literally been untouched by another human being for the entire time that he had been infected. And yet this guy sensed that with Jesus, there was something different. And so when he saw Jesus, Jesus in all of his holiness, in all of his glory, this guy, and maybe it was because he was so far down, he knew that he didn't have any other choice. But he saw in Jesus something. And he said to him, he fell on his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He sensed who Jesus really was, but for some reason, and again, it was probably just his desperation, 
Could have been just the beginnings of faith, too. But he sensed that God was holy and he wasn't, but that Jesus, if he was willing, could bridge that gap. And in fact, he did. Look at what Jesus did. It says he reached out and he touched the man. This is a man who hadn't been touched for years. And Jesus didn't have to touch him to heal him. You know, if you if you've pay attention to how Jesus heals, he does it differently every time. Sometimes he touches people. Sometimes he just talks. Sometimes he rubs mud in their eye. Does all kinds of strange things. So his technique, it was obviously not technique dependent. But I think Jesus sensed something that was up with this guy and knew that touching him was going to be the first step to him really being okay. But here's the, it's the, it's, Jesus touches him. He reaches out and says, I am willing to make you clean. Again, yes, God is holy. God is just. He is good. He is utterly without sin. But God is absolutely willing to reach across that gap between us and him and to make us well, to make us whole, to make us clean, to take away our sin, to make us be clean. And immediately, the man's leprosy left him. So here's two encounters that people have with God himself in the flesh and Jesus and a vision of the Lord in the temple. Both of them see the Lord in his full power and holiness. And what we see in both of these instances is that in both of these cases, God makes the person ready and he creates space for them as his people. Here's another example from the Bible. This is a really visual passage. It's, it's written in a really visual way. In fact, the whole passage riffs off of the verb to see, and so we'll give it to you in a visual way. And this is, um, this is the story of Moses at the burning bush. So as you might know the story, this is um, Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out tending his father-in-law's sheep. This is not a prestigious job. Moses is older. He's basically failed his way into this job. He's not thinking, man, I'm on my way. He's thinking this is about as bad as it gets. So he's out there tending his... You've even seen the picture. He's just not happy at this point, right? Doesn't he just look not happy? And so as he's out there tending his father-in-law's sheep, he sees a bush that is suddenly on fire. But it's not being burnt up. Now, if you're in the desert and things catch fire, you know this is kind of dangerous because you're going to immediately have a brush fire or something like that. And so he's on it. He's going to go see what's happening here. But in the time it takes him to get to this bush, it ought to be burned up. But it's not. It's still burning. And so he goes over, he goes across, and he, again, he's, just, he's still all this guy. He says, I'm going to go across and see why this strange bush is not being burnt up. And so when he gets there, a voice comes out of the bush and says to him, Moses, Moses. Now Moses is really adrift without a paddle. You know, he's like, what's happening here? I don't know what's happening. And then the voice says something interesting. It says, come no, me, come no near, but take off your shoes or your sandals because the grand, ground you are standing on is holy ground. Now, what Moses has just done is traveled like a million miles conceptually 
in about three seconds. You know, he was just some dude taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. You, you tended sheep when you couldn't do anything else, okay? He's tending his father-in-law, and working for your father-in-law in Israel would be like working for your father-in-law now, okay? Um, unless my children's spouses end up working for me, and that would be completely different, right? Um, <laughs> But he's a guy who's just there who is suddenly, without realizing it, he is completely in God's presence. And not only that, he is in a place that is just as holy as the temple was, which is why he has to take off his shoes. But here's the deal, and we focus on this, but or we, we miss this, is that the simple act of just taking off his shoes means that it is okay for Moses to be there. It is okay for Moses to be in a holy place, in a place that belongs to God, in a place that is just as holy as the temple will be later on when that gets built. It means that Moses is as fully in God's presence as you can possibly be on this earth. And what does the Lord do? He doesn't say, well, look, Moses, before we talk, there's a lot of years of stuff we need to work out here. Okay, I've been watching you, and there's some things we got to address. He get, all he does is does a simple thing. He says, take off your shoes. Because Moses intuitively knows that if he, as a sinful man, is going to go into God's presence, he's going to have to do something. And so the Lord kind of works with that and gives him a really simple thing, the kind of thing that you do when you get home anyway and when you're at home. He says, take off your shoes. And from that moment on, Moses is entirely in God's presence. What's fascinating, though, is that Moses' response after he, the Lord tells him this is to hide his face. He hides his face. It's hard to do that when you're a Lego. <laughs> but he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It was like Moses is realizing in that fraction of a second everything that's been happening, and it's like, Oh my God, a minute ago I was chasing sheep, now I'm in the presence of God and I, I, I don't know what to do other than hide my face. And yet, all he had to do was take off his shoes and he was fully in God's presence. He didn't have to go through a whole lot of things because God had already bridged the gap. God had already taken down the wall between he and Moses because God is in the business of making us ready to be in his presence. And God is in the business of making room and tearing down whatever walls there are between us. In Ephesians 2, not Ephesians 3, but Ephesians 2, um, it talks about that, about how the dividing wall between people has been torn down. And it talks, so this is Paul reflecting on what God has done in Christ and it's this thing we've been talking about all along. And so if stories aren't enough for you, if you need complicated Pauline sentences to really believe what I'm saying, I'm about to give you some of that here. Um, he says this. He's trying to understand what happens when we come to Jesus and the way that gap between a holy God and us gets bridged. Paul says this. He says, remember, at that time, this is before we became followers of Jesus, he says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, 
and foreigners to the covenants and the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's some negative stuff, yeah? And, and that is the case. That while God is wanting to bridge that gap, while a holy God wants to bridge that space between us and himself, while he wants to tear down those dividing walls, unless we're willing to take that step across, we are going to be this. We are going to be separate and excluded and foreigners without hope and without God, but that's not because that's the way God wants it, and it's not because, because God's holy that's sort of the default. Because God is holy, he will do whatever needs to be done and has done whatever needs to be done to bridge that gap between us and him, to tear down the walls between us and him. And the great news is that for those of us that are in Christ, we who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by our work, not by our good behavior, not by going back and undoing the last 10, 20, 30 years of our lives, but by the blood of Christ and accepting God's work on our behalf that we're brought near to him. That space goes away because God is in the business of making us ready to be in his presence. That's what the blood of Jesus did. It was what taking shoes off was for Moses. It's what getting a coal on the lips was for Isaiah. Jesus' blood makes us ready to be in God's presence. And he brings us near. He takes that space away. And he makes room for us in his place. Let me tell you one more story about um, that sort of shows what God is like. Um, this is a story about Holy Joe. I, I doubt that this story really happened. I'm that guy that listens to preachers tell these great stories, and I'm like, I don't know, man. So I, I will do that for you and say this probably didn't happen, but it's still an awesome story. All kinds of stories didn't happen. Lord of the Rings didn't happen. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know, right? Right? <laughs> Um, there is no Harry Potter. Herm- Hermione is actually Noah's daughter, if you, if you want to know that. Anyway, um, but, but this story is about a guy named Holy Joe. It takes place during the Second World War. And this Holy Joe was a guy from Tennessee that they called him Holy Joe because he was always reading his Bible. He was always praying. And he told the, he says, fellas, if I die out here, I need you to, I need you to bury me in holy ground. Because I can't, I can't be buried outside of holy ground. I'm a, ho- I'm a man that belongs to God. I want to live a holy, you know, something. Anyway, I don't even know if that's a Tennessee accent. It's more like Texas, I think. But, um, but he told the guys this. And, and this is, you know, they're, they're, in the, they're in France. They're in the midst of fighting during World War II. Lots of guys are dying in their group. So this is something they're all thinking about. And then the worst did happen. Joe was wounded and then died. And as he's dying, he says, fellas, you gotta, you got to bury me in holy ground. And so the guys took a chance. His three closest friends separated from their unit and traveled overnight to this small church they'd seen in a village just a, a couple miles previously. And they, they get to the door, and they knock on the door of the abbey where the, the priest who, who ran this church was. And he had enough English that they were able to talk to each other. And they, said, they told him Joe's story and about how he needed to be buried in holy ground. And they had a churchyard and a cemetery right outside their church that was designated as a holy place. And they asked 
you know, look, we don't know you, you don't know us, but can, can we bury our friend here in your holy ground? And the priest was just heartbroken because he saw what these guys were trying to do was a really good thing. But he had rules. And in his understanding of things, you needed to be a baptized, confirmed Catholic in order to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. In, and these things often are like that. And he tried to explain to the guys, and the guys pleaded with him, you know, just can, can you just make a spot? And the priest said, no, I, I, I can't. It breaks my heart to say this, but, but I can't. And he was coming from such a, a, a soft place that the men could see it. And they said, Father, that's okay. We, we'll, we'll bury him as close as we can. So they took him, his body outside, and they dug a grave just outside the fence of the cemetery. And they buried him there. And they prayed for him. These were guys that you know, had never prayed, so they prayed in the way that people that never prayed pray. And then they rejoined their unit and went back and kept fighting. So about three weeks later, they, they had a break and they had a leave, and these guys were free to go without sneaking out, and so they immediately beat it back to this little town where they had buried their friend because they were going to, at the very least, um, maybe dig up his body and take him somewhere else, or at the very least put some kind of grave marker where they had buried their friend. And as they walked around the perimeter, they went to the spot where they'd, they'd buried him, and there was no grave there. And they walked the entire perimeter of this churchyard, this cemetery, several times in several directions so they could see it from different angles of light. They even took the bayonets on their rifles and tried to stick it in the ground to find the soft spot where they would have buried their friend, and, and they just couldn't find him. And they were just heartbroken that not only have we failed our friend in burying him in holy ground, but somebody must have stolen his body too. And so, so they, they went inside to talk to the priest. And they start to tell the story, and, and he says, no, no, he says, I understand. You need to hear what I have to say. And so he says, he says Here, here's what happened. He says, you know the rules that I have to live by. But I also know what those rules were designed to do, that those rules were designed to bless God's people, and your friend was obviously one of God's people. And while I did have these rules, and these rules to keep this ground holy, to keep it sacred, I also remembered the way that the Lord helped Isaiah be in his place. I remembered that the Lord longs to be gracious, and he rises up to show mercy. So while you were gone, I went out and I moved the fence. I went out and I moved the fence. And so your friend is now in holy ground. Friends, God wants to make us ready to be in his presence, a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, a God who is all those things that we are not automatically that's not a problem. And as much as it is a problem because we are broken, because we are sinful, because we've been dirtied and unclean by some of our choices, God will make us ready to be in his presence. That God will take the step to take away the barriers between us and himself 
And the reason that priest knew that it was okay to move the fence is that what God has already done. For those of us who were once far away, for those of us who were once excluded, God has moved the fence and brought us inside. So as the band comes back forward, I want to talk to you about what I'd suggest is going to be our exercise in the next week. Now, sometimes it's a different discipline or something like this. And what I want to invite you to do is live with this reality that God has made you ready to be in, your, in his presence. He's done it. You don't have to do anything else. He has done it. So you can stand boldly in his holy presence. So what I would invite you to do this week is to find the courage and try to reflect on this for just a few minutes every day. What is it that separates me from God? What is it that God's God and I'm not? What are the things that have made me sinful or unclean? Confess them, ask for God's forgiveness, but then realize that God will take those away and make you ready to be in his presence. So if there is something that makes you feel like God is here, and you're over here, name that, own that, and if it helps you to visualize it, visualize God taking that away from you. 